0: This is Conducting Business. I'm Naomi Lewin. When Reynolds Levy became president of Lincoln Center in 2002, that organization was, in the words of New York Magazine, a community in deep distress riven by conflict. So, no surprise, the title of Levy's new book is They Told Me Not to Take That Job. In the dozen years he spent as head of Lincoln Center, Levy oversaw a massive redevelopment while dealing with massive egos. And I'm not talking about the performers. Randall Levy, welcome to Conducting Business. Thank you. You've written insider books dealing with nonprofit management before. What made you decide to make this one so frank and even kind of juicy?
1: Nonprofit institutions generally, and arts institutions as well, need to be well governed, well managed, well led. And when they are, they soar when uh, trustees and staff are working together and fully aligned and energized, you see the results. You see them at the Museum of Natural History. You see them at the New Whitney. um, You see them at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. You see them at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. You see them all around our town. When they're not, when governance goes astray, uh, when management is not being held accountable, they get themselves into deep trouble. And I thought because this whole sector is relatively unregulated, it's important to call attention to the public, uh, those that are not so well-governed or well-managed.
0: The title, They Told Me Not to Take That Job, refers to what friends and mentors all said to you back in 2002. So why couldn't you resist taking that job?
1: In part because of nine I'm a native New Yorker. Uh, the city was set back badly. I'd never seen my city as traumatized. We had a new mayor, uh, Mayor Bloomberg. I'd waited most of my adult life for the Second Avenue Tunnel, for the expansion of the Javits Center, for the new Moynihan Station to replace Penn Station, uh, for the renovation of LaGuardia and JFK airports. And most
0: of which have still not happened.
1: Most of which have still not happened. And here was Lincoln Center in the midst of this kind of controversy, and I had just completed six years as the president of the International Rescue Committee dealing with conflicts abroad and life and death situations, I thought I might be able to be helpful.
0: So, you saw this arts organization in a life and death situation?
1: Well, I saw it as um, in, in deep trouble. I was reading about it. Uh, journalists had a feast, they really enjoyed reporting on this opera uh, on stage and off stage and the conflicts and controversies about policy and about personality. And I thought I might be able to make a contribution to fixing it.
0: Speaking of opera, Lincoln Center had 10 performing arts organizations and two educational institutions when you did take that job. But one of them disappeared during your tenure. And your autopsy report on New York City Opera called it suicide rather than murder. If you had been the general manager or the board chair of City Opera. What would you have done to save it?
1: Well, we tried to model the behavior at Lincoln Center. I would have um, made vigorous efforts to expand the board. I would have insisted on a higher level of contribution from board members. I would have put repertoire in a 2,700-seat theater that was appropriate to a 2,700-seat theater and not to a 900-seat theater or a 1,000-seat theater. Um, What
0: are the choices you think were?
1: Well, under Paul Kellogg and then later George Steele, both of them had um, been connected to organizations, in Paul's case, uh, Glimmerglass, and in Steele's case, the Miller Theater, uh, that were much smaller and more appropriate to Baroque opera rather than fully staged opera. And they were also uh, experimenting more, and those experiments might have appealed to music critics, uh, but they certainly didn't appeal to audiences. And so audiences were eroding fairly severely during my tenure, in part because of that and in part because of the self-inflicted wound of telling the audience about the inadequacies, the supposed inadequacies of the then state theater for music.
0: You have very high praise for New York Philharmonic music director Alan Gilbert, especially after the Lauren Mazel era. What do you make of Alan Gilbert's departure or his newly announced departure?
1: You know, honestly, I've had enough on my hands describing my period at Lincoln Center, and I'm I'm not in a position to speculate about what happened subsequent to my departure. I will say Alan... has been a terrific figure for Lincoln Center and from my perspective for the orchestra. There's been no greater proponent of free music in the park. There's been no greater connection between the Philharmonic and the Juilliard School as the conductor of the Juilliard uh, program. There's been no more outspoken New Yorker. He's put New York back in the name New York Philharmonic. Uh, And there was no one as enthusiastic and as imaginative about reconceiving Avery Fisher Hall than Alan Gilbert.
0: So you're sorry, you, you are sorry to see him go? And I am would, sorry to see him go. You would say for you it's too soon? Uh,
1: he has to do what he thinks is best for him and for the orchestra. He's clearly made his judgment on that score. Let's put it this way. I, I'm a huge fan, and I will miss him.
0: This is Conducting Business. I'm speaking with Reynold Leafy, former president of Lincoln Center, and that led to his new book, they told me not to take that job. What was the first thing out of your mouth when you heard that the New York Philharmonic wanted to move to Carnegie Hall?
1: I was uh, genuinely stunned. Uh, I was really stunned. We had worked intensively together for a little more than a year on reconceiving a new auditorium inside the existing structure of Avery Fisher Hall. We went around the world looking at different halls, and we spent... By we, you mean... The the New York representatives, the New York Philharmonic representatives of Lincoln Center, and we spent hundreds of hours in conference rooms together thinking through different alternatives. And there was actual an agreement, which I outlined and They Told Me Not to Take That Job, on the nature of what both boards would be presented with and a request... To me, to draft a memorandum that would go for the first time to the executive committee's meeting jointly of the New York Philharmonic and of Lincoln Center on this plan. It was in that context that we were told, we're going to Carnegie Hall instead. Myself and the then chairman of the board, Bruce Crawford, were v- shocked.
0: This is the chair of the Lincoln Center board. Correct. Correct. Why do you think the Philharmonic and Carnegie Hall leapt into a partnership without looking beforehand? I
1: don't understand it, and I I remark in the book that the the lack of due diligence was shocking to me. If you just overlaid what the New York Philharmonic performance and rehearsal needs were onto the schedule of Carnegie Hall, you could see in the times when the New York Philharmonic wishes to play how much would have to be displaced, And if you take prime time, the times when the Chicago Symphony performs or the Philadelphia or uh, or the Vienna or the Berlin, you could see that there would be enormous displacement. So as a threshold matter, it seemed like this would not work logistically, let alone preserving the prerogatives of the New York Philharmonic as an independent institution, its choice of repertoire let alone the conflicts that might exist in fundraising between Carnegie Hall and the New York Philharmonic. Issues of governance, uh, who would be in charge, really? Um, so even before you got to all of those questions, which hadn't been addressed, the sheer laws of physics seemed to suggest that two orchestras cannot play on the same stage at the same time. <laughs> even at Carnegie Hall? Even at Carnegie Hall.
0: Avery Fisher Hall is now set to be renamed for David Geffen, who gave $100 million towards renovating it. But there was an article in the New York Times that questioned whether $100 million was really enough to secure naming rights on a project that is expected to cost at least $500 million. What do you think?
1: I spent 12 years at Lincoln Center being told what we couldn't do uh, and uh, being questioned about whether we could raise $1.2 or $1.4 billion to redo the rest of Lincoln Center. So it doesn't come as a surprise to me that there would be skeptics um, and naysayers. That's a very large group in New York City and a large one in the journalistic fraternity, which I suppose uh, is supposed to be skeptical and questioning uh, at all times. In any other city, a $100 million down payment would seem like a significant down payment, uh, and I think it is. It's an enormous expression of confidence in Lincoln Center and in the New York Philharmonic from a philanthropist who hadn't been giving to Lincoln Center at all. So to go from not being related to Lincoln Center as a philanthropist to $100 million um, is remarkable and a credit to the conversations and the persuasiveness of Catherine Farley, the chair of the board of Lincoln Center, and I think bodes very well for the rest of the fundraising.
0: You mentioned the fundraising you oversaw for a massive renovation of Lincoln Center. What do you consider the best parts of that renovation, and is there anything that just kind of disappointed you a little?
1: It's hard to select from among your your children. There are so many different projects that this renovation resulted in. You know, it's a 38,000-square-foot expansion of the Juilliard School, a brand-new Alice Tully Hall, green spaces all over Lincoln Center, a David Rubenstein Atrium, a new theater space for Lincoln Center Theater, two new screening rooms for the Film Society, a brand-new fountain, uh, new public spaces, information technology uh, all over, accessibility and um, wonderful subterranean spaces where people can walk to the, the subway, a totally Wi-Fi campus. What I'm most proud of is the fact that it's opened up to the city. Forty-five percent of New Yorkers are were not born here. They're first-generation New Yorkers. They deserve a place at Lincoln Center. They, too, need to feel welcome. So the expansion of spaces, the David Rubenstein Atrium indoors and many spaces outdoors in which we can do free programming uh, makes me very proud, I'm very happy to see children, working-class families, those on public assistance able to come and get a taste of what Lincoln Center is all about.
0: Reynold Levy is the former president of Lincoln Center. His new book is They Told Me Not to Take That Job. Speaking of difficult jobs, did you see last summer's labor showdown at the Met coming?
1: What I didn't see, and I remark in the book, being the president of Lincoln Center, I was not unfamiliar with the Metropolitan Opera's financial challenges. But in anticipation of collective bargaining, when Peter Gelb was quoted in The Observer as saying, unless we can significantly um, reduce the costs of labor uh, and otherwise create a new financial model for the Metropolitan Opera, we are two to three years from bankruptcy. The severity and speed of that judgment surprised me, Uh, but it wasn't a surprise that uh, the Metropolitan Opera management would be looking to labor for some significant concessions. They received them on the salary side, but there were no substantive changes to work rules, to health benefits, or to pensions, which are three very important cost areas that uh, went unaddressed in the collective bargaining
0: agreement. Do you think that the settlement that was reached between the Met and its unions is going to be enough to right that shift?
1: I don't know. Uh, Well, it's certainly not going to be enough. There are lots of other steps that will have to be taken. I think it was significant. Uh, This is the first time in maybe as many as 30 years that labor offered a reduction in salaries uh, as part of a collective bargaining agreement. And I'm delighted that there was no interruption in the Metropolitan Opera's performances, which I think would have been a significant setback uh, to the Met. But with the erosion of its endowment, and with it having run such a substantial deficit in the last season of $22 million, the Met has a lot of work to do and labor has a lot more uh, cooperative activity with management to set its finances in sound order.
0: What would you do if they asked you to run the Metropolitan Opera? I make a few
1: suggestions and They Told Me Not to Take That Job. I think if there were fewer operas, that would help. Uh, if there were more that were co-produced, that would help. The most popular time for performing arts we found at Lincoln Center as the largest presenter of art is Sundays. Sundays is the day when the Metropolitan Opera is dark. And no time has been set aside of a break between the seasons when lots of commercial activity would long to be in the Metropolitan Opera and pay handsomely for it. And by that, I mean everything from Tony Awards to Oscar Awards to Country Music Awards. So I think there's some uh, steps that, that can be taken managerially that can be helpful. But by far, what will be most important is building back that endowment and raising more money uh, for annual seasons.
0: In his review of your book in New York Magazine... Justin Davidson praises your conclusions that even big prestigious institutions are fantastically vulnerable, always a few bad mistakes away from catastrophe. Does that come down to training and hiring of arts managers, ultimately? What can we do to get more capable managers or board members involved?
1: Well, I think it's a combination of talented, uh, driven, uh, extraordinarily hardworking, competent staff, an inspired, involved, energetic, and generous board. Um, Recruiting that kind of board and enlarging it is a, a huge responsibility for both management and for a chairman and not to be taken for granted. And I lay out, and they told me, how much that mattered to Lincoln Center, how much moving from 43 trustees to 80 trustees, and how much asking for additional um, contribution each year made such a material difference in the budget of Lincoln Center, uh, and so much easier to have a record of balanced and surplus budgets, which has been unbroken at Lincoln Center, stemming back from uh, the years of Nat Leventhal and uh, his 17 years in, in office. We have a covenant with our board that we will balance our budgets, and everyone works together to make that happen.
0: Did you tell your successor to take that job?
1: I was not asked, and I am not in the business of giving unsolicited advice.
0: Reynolds Levy is the former president of Lincoln Center. His new book is They Told Me Not to Take That Job. This has been Conducting Business. Brian Wise is our producer. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thanks for listening.